Welcome to Early Matters, the podcast on the science and policy of early childhood, hosted by Dr. Catherine B. Stevens. Early Matters features in-depth conversations with leading researchers, practitioners, and policy experts on what matters most for young children and their families to thrive. Welcome back to Early Matters. I'm Catherine Stevens, your host and the founder and president of the Center on Child and Family Policy. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Dana Suskind to the podcast today. Dr. Suskind is a pediatric surgeon at the University of Chicago Medical Center who specializes in hearing loss and cochlear implantation and a social scientist who studies children's early language environments and is recognized as a national thought leader in early language development. She directs the University of Chicago Medical Center's Pediatric Hearing Loss and Cochlear Implant Program. She's also the founder and co-director of the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health, which aims to create a population-level shift in the knowledge and behavior of parents to better support their children's foundational brain development from birth to age three, particularly those born into poverty. In addition to running the TMW Center and doing pediatric surgery, she's also the best-selling author of two widely acclaimed books. The first is titled 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brain, published in 2015. And the second, published just a couple of years ago, is titled Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential and Fulfilling Society's Promise. I'm very excited to talk with her about all of this today. I am so thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd love to begin by hearing a little bit about your own professional pathway. You got your medical degree and then did your residency in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and did your fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology. In 2002, you joined the University of Chicago Medical Center as a pediatric laryngologist who founded the Pediatric Hearing Loss and Cochlear Implant Program in 2007. What led you from that work to your current expanded focus beyond your patients to early language acquisition in general? So thank you so much, Catherine, for that question. And thank you for being able to say the word otolaryngologist, because I know it is a total mouthful. (laughs) Um, So as you mentioned, the beginnings of my career was as a pediatric otolaryngologist who specialized in cochlear implantation. The cochlear implant, as many of your listeners know, is an amazing piece of technology that allows a child born deaf the ability to hear, to talk, and mainstream into this world, both educationally and socially. But when I started that hearing loss program back in early 2000s, I started noticing dramatically different outcomes in my patient populations, with some of my patients excelling developmentally after the implant and others not excelling. In fact, the differences were dramatic with some of my patients learning how to talk and really being on a typically developmental trajectory for education and others barely being able to communicate. And it was seeing those disparities, knowing that these kids all had the same potential to learn and talk and excel developmentally that really pushed me out of the operating room into the world of social sciences, where I learned why these differences were occurring, that it wasn't about the implant, but rather the differences in the early language exposure that they were uh, being exposed to, that the cochlear implant allowed a child to hear, but you had to be born into a rich uh, language environment. And so my research began with really understanding the power of parents and caregivers and their talk and interaction to build children's brains and developing scientifically-based programs to help parents understand their power and to start enriching their children's language environment. And as I was doing that, primarily working with children from the hearing loss population, I realized that what I was seeing in my hearing loss population really just mirrored the population at large. That in all children, nurturing talk and interaction builds children's brains, not just their vocabulary, but the entire brain in the early years. And that all parents and all caregivers have the power to enrich their children's language environment. And that's how I got to this point of talking to you and working in this amazing field. I guess there was a study done way back in the mid-90s that is seen as kind of pioneering research uh, in 
this area of parental child language. It was conducted, I think, by child psychologist Betty Hart and Todd Risley, who found that children in lower socioeconomic homes heard far less language than their counterparts in higher socioeconomic homes and estimated the size of that gap to be around 30 million words by age four. Uh, Can you say something about that study and how our thinking about what a rich language environment means, how, how our thinking on that has advanced since that initial research? Yes, yes. So you're talking about the Hart and Risley study, which frankly was one of the first studies that I learned about when I stepped out of the operating room. I actually audited child development classes here at the University of Chicago. And that study, basically, they followed a relatively small group of families, I think like 42, and they extrapolated going in monthly to showing that the differences in talk, and it was also interaction, etc., that differences in input correlated to later differences in test scores, IQ, etc. They called it the quote-unquote 30 million word gap. You know, to be honest, this was the first thing I learned, and I was like, oh, wow, this makes a whole lot of sense. It's not differences in potential, but differences in exposure. Now, of course, since I always say it was compelling enough to help push me out of the operating room, but as we've learned more and more, it is really just a first sentence in a robust literature showing the different ways that nurturing talk and interaction builds children's brains. You know, that study now, we can find many different issues and flaws with it, but I, I always think of it as a first sentence. You know, with that being said, uh, what is very interesting is that what's been found, it's much more about the quality of input, you know, the back and forth between adult and child, the tone, et cetera. But I do want to caveat it that as our thinking and learnings as a field has grown, understanding that so often that type of study can say, okay, it's all on the parents. This is all about how much you're talking and interacting. But understanding how context impacts it. You know, if you're in a home without a roof over your head or not enough food to eat, in the terms of Maslow hierarchy, that will be lowest on the list of things that you need to do. But with that being said, I think that it doesn't change the fact that the connection between parent and child, caregiver and child, that what we call early relational help is so powerful for building human development in the whole brain. You've written that the parent language, that the early home language environment has been found to influence an individual's ability to reach their fullest potential in math, spatial reasoning and literacy, their ability to regulate their behavior, their reaction to stress, their perseverance, and even their moral fiber. It is an essential catalyst in determining the strength and permanence of certain neural wirings. And the period from birth to three is especially critical to this process. Part of what you've explained about this is the way, unlike any other organ, the brain is kind of unfinished at birth and that this critical development is occurring after birth and that the, the means of that development we are now discovering are these kinds of ongoing loving interactions. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. And thank you for that question. What what I think we often think about language and interaction, intuitively people say, oh, I understand how it builds vocabulary development, right? Language in, vocabulary. But the truth is early language environments builds the entire brain from math and spatial to socio-emotional, executive function, et cetera. And why is this? It's because when you think about the brain, humans are really very interesting because unlike any other species, a puppy, a horse, even a sea turtle, when they're born, their brains are almost adult size. That's why you see horses standing within hours and sea turtles getting to the sea within hours. But babies are pretty underdeveloped. And it's because if our brains were as big as they needed to be to be adult size at birth, we could barely fit through the birth canal. We couldn't fit through the birth canal. So nature had to make a compromise. And basically, the baby's brain came out about a third the size of the adult size. And in that first 
year, two years, it has to finish off the job where 85% of the physical brain is grown during that period of time. And so that nurturing interaction isn't just building vocabulary, it is finishing the wiring of the human brain. Every second of nurturing interaction builds some 1 million new neural connections every second. So you're finishing off the brain. And so often we think about you know, education is like teaching reading and writing. But I think we need to rethink these early years. It's not just teaching these different skills, math and spatial or reading and writing and vocabulary. It is finishing off the building of the human brain. And so when society doesn't invest in this time period, doesn't invest in parents and caregivers as the key brain architect, we are short shrifting, not just the, the child that we're talking about, but society as a whole. So I'm going to use the word parent because I think around 97% of children under age three are living with at least one parent. In terms of the sort of parent language and the early language environment, can you say more about what scientists now understand are the essential dimensions of that environment? If I were to go into a home and observe a parent and a six-month-old, what would I see that would enable me to know that this was a high-quality, rich, early language environment? Uh, I love that question. You know, I always say that there are many ways to parent a child, and there's one way to build that child's brain. And when you would go into that home language environment at six months, it changes and evolves over the first three years of life as a child builds more capacity. But probably in that time period, you'd see a parent cooing and interacting with that baby using something called parentese, that sort of rich sing-songy voice that you often see between adult and a child. You'd see joint attention where they were looking at each other, where the parent was on the child's level. And what's amazing is there was a recent study that looked at parentese, you know, that sing-songy voice across the world, right? Because look, there are cultural differences in parenting within countries, across countries. Uh, but what's amazing is this study found, I think, of 1,000 recordings from across the world that there are some commonalities of that parentese, that rich sing-songy voice that you'll find everywhere. And it is what is building the child's brain. And so and if I were to go back to that same home and now the child is a toddler, the child is two, what would I see that would let me know that it was a high-quality early language environment for that age? At the TMW Center, one of the core learning tools that we call the three T's, tune in, talk more, take turns, is our shorthand way describing what a rich early language environment looks like. And it looks different as a child get, gets older, but there are fundamentals to that, whether they're six months or two and a half years. And what are the three T's? Tuning in, talking more, taking turns. Tuning in is really the parent tuning in to the child's interests, following the child's lead, getting on the child's level. Talking more is really the parent using a rich language interaction, talking about the past, the future, and the present. And then taking turns is probably the most powerful of the three T's, really viewing the baby as a conversational partner from day one. And sometimes parents are like, wait, I can't have a conversation with my baby. They're only six months or they're only three months. But really that interaction can look very different, many different ways. So when they're six months, it could be the mother or the father says something and the baby points or babbles and the parent repeats it and extends it. But really that conversation is what is so core to the rich language environment. So we call it the three T's and it's the core teaching tool in all of our programs. So another area of research and practice that you've been focusing on that I find really fascinating is focused on the role of parent knowledge and parent beliefs. Can you say something about what kind of knowledge and what kinds of beliefs and what your research has found makes those matter so much? Yes, absolutely. You know, what I've always found interesting is 
the fact that, look, the love of parents and caregivers for children, that is embedded so deeply in our DNA. It is a universal. I, as a physician who has taken care of children for way longer than I'd like to admit, that is one fundamental. I mean, parents will do everything and anything for their children. It is so deeply embedded. But what's interesting is that we assume that parents also are born with the knowledge of how children's brains develop and optimal ways to supporting that. I don't know about you, but I know that when my children were young, this was before I started doing this research, I didn't know anything about this stuff. You don't learn about it in medical school. You don't learn how talk and interaction builds children's brains or the different ways to help support their developmental trajectories. And so as part of our work, developing programs to help support parents become their children's first and most important brain architects, we started sharing some of the developmental science that we've been creating, not just me, but people across the country and the world in understanding children's development and the different ways that environment can positively impact it. And towards that end, we started exploring, does it matter that parents know that talk and interaction builds children's brain? Does it matter that parents know that, you know, describing a window as a rectangle or a square impacts their math and spatial ability or different things that we know scientifically. And in fact, it did. What we found is that the more parents understood about their children's development, the more aligned their knowledge was with the existing scientific literature, the more facilitative behavior the parents had with their children and the better child outcomes. And so we did a longitudinal study on the south side of Chicago with a home visiting program. And what we found with these primarily mothers, and there, there were some fathers, they started off with equal knowledge. But the parents that we shared this knowledge of how powerful they were as brain architects and the different ways to build their children's brains, that actually mapped into what they did. And their kids had stronger language development, stronger math and spatial skills. Now, let's be clear, you know, knowledge isn't everything. We know that. I mean, if it was, nobody would be smoking, right? But at the same time, you can't skip over that parents deserve to know how children's development, and we don't have any really sort of standardized way to share this knowledge. You know, parents go searching for it on their own, and sometimes they get the scientifically found knowledge and others not. But the knowledge of children's development for parents is incredibly important and powerful. So another dimension of this that I'd love to hear more about is the role of beliefs. So what I'm hearing you say is that many, if perhaps not most parents, really don't understand how crucial their role is in early brain development and that simply informing them of how crucial their role is will in and of itself prompt important changes in what they're doing with their children. How do beliefs fit into this? Yeah, yeah. As mentioned, our work on knowledge and understanding child development is one important facet of it, but also parents understanding how incredibly powerful they are in regard to their children's development is equally important. And so many of the families that we've worked with, I mean, even myself, think that, okay, the education starts on day one in school, right? It's about what happens in school. And allowing parents to understand how important and powerful they are is a key facet of allowing parents to really maximize their children's development. Mm -hmm. And so I used to talk about it as growth mindset parenting, that children aren't born smart, they're made smart. They're made smart by parents and caregivers talking and interacting with, with their children. And at the same time, we've seen huge impacts of parents understanding that with the caveat that we need to acknowledge the important role that society and community plays in supporting parents in that role. Yes. Because it's not enough to say, hey, parents, you know, you are powerful. It's all on you while you get no societal or community support. So it's equally important of supporting parents as the key brain architects and them truly believing it and internalizing it is the understanding that society plays an important role in supporting parents in that role. Yes. I've been saying that it takes a village to support a family. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think that I said, you know, we often talk about it takes a village to raise a child, which is a lovely saying. But in some ways, and I can't remember who said it, it really, it takes a parent or caregiver to raise a child and a village and a community and a society to support that parent in that powerful role. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I'd like to hear more about what is the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health? What's your mission? And what kind of work is the center doing? Yeah. So the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health at the University of Chicago, I co-directed with John List, who's a behavioral economist, but we are a center of 30, 35 researchers, technologists, early educators, and the like. And it's a translational research program with the mission of helping optimize healthy brain development of all children through the support of parents, caregivers, early educators in the early years. And we do basically three buckets of work towards that goal. One is we call it innovate or research and development, developing evidence-based tools and technologies and programs that support and elevate the important role that parents and caregivers and child care providers play in building healthy brain development. Uh, The second bucket of work is what we call collaborate or community-based collaborations. We are not a direct service provider. That is not our expertise. It is really about partnering with those on the ground who are working with parents and caregivers and providers to support parents, to support children's development. So we have exciting projects across the nation and lots of exciting stuff, taking what we've developed and the science we've developed and really partnering with those on the ground to help disseminate it. And then the last bucket is what we call dissemination or helping elevate the field with things like writing the book, Parent Nation was part and parcel of it. How do we get society to really understand how important the early years are? I mean, you and I are are one as we think about how do the policies better support parents and caregivers in this important role? And there are so many different ways that that can happen. The science of scaling. So we're a sort of a complex, wonderful center just working to try to make the world a better place for children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what are some interventions in that second bucket of the center's activity? What kinds of interventions have you been involved with supporting and doing research on? Yeah. So I sort of separate the development of programs from the tools and technology. So programmatically, some of the exciting work that we've done, which is always focused on parents and caregivers and child care providers and uses that, remember that teaching tool that I shared, the three T's we developed? curriculum. So we have an amazing, wonderful partnership with the you know, PNC Grope Great Foundation, where we have been disseminating and working across the country with communities, leveraging what we call our group sessions called Let's Talk and Let's Talk Dads. Uh, we also work with the Steve Nash Foundation, where we bring together parents and caregivers in learning the different ways the three T's can build not only children's vocabulary, but their math and spatial, et cetera. And we're working across, I think, eight or nine different communities. Um, And uh, so that's one example of working with community-based organizations while also advancing our science, while also advancing impact. In terms of tools and technology. One of the exciting technologies that we've put out in the world or we're putting out in the world is something that we call the Speak Cat, which remember when we talked about the importance of uh, understanding what parents know and believe in terms of their children's development? Well, we've actually created what we call a computer adaptive tool that helps you undercover what parents know and believe about uh, children's development, which allows us not only to say, okay, look, you know, so often our programs are one size fits all. You're a certain demographic, we're going to give you this. You're another demographic, we'll give you this. But the truth is, is that every parent brings their asset and nuance to the table. By doing a one size fits all, it's not honoring that. So we hope that this computer adaptive tool will allow us to say, oh, mom or dad, you already know that reading is important and talk and interaction is important. So why would we focus on and spend that time? Well, you already know that. But 
we see that you don't know as much about math and spatial talk and interaction. Let's focus on that. So this speak cat, we hope can not only be a measurement tool to understand impact, but more importantly, to start providing personalized guidance to parents rather than treating you as a monolithic group. Each parent is unique and they deserve to be treated as unique individuals. So where would parents use this? How are you getting this tool to parents? Yeah, we had the Speak, which was not a computer adaptive tool that we've been partnering with people across the country and the world. This computer adaptive tool is relatively new and we're starting to partner with a lot of uh, different groups. And we imagine, we hope that it's going to be able to be leveraged in many different ways. We imagine pediatricians, right? Could pediatricians leverage this technology because they are seeing children and families regularly from day one? Could this technology help give them the ability to give more personalized guidance? You know, often pediatricians focus on feeding and sleeping and safety. Could this technology and insight help them give more personalized guidance in helping their parents understand their children's uh, cognitive development. So pediatricians could be one. Working with different organizations like early care and education for child care providers. How could you imagine this being used? Well, let's say you have a child care provider who's working with three-year-olds, and all of a sudden they're going down to the one-year-old classroom. Well, they may know grossly, you know, the one-year-old is different than the three-year-old, but maybe this tool could help them get supercharged on the differences in one-year-olds. There's so many different ways, and we really want this tool to be an opportunity for collaboration across the early childhood space. We don't want to be the only ones who are like, oh, it could be used this way and that way. We're excited for organizations to partner with us, researchers to partner with us. So the most common way that interventions that are focused especially on low-income parents aiming to support them in parenting, occur through home visiting programs. You had talked about those. There's another arena that you've also mentioned where this kind of thing could be happening, and that is with pediatricians. You described in an article that you wrote hearing a a medical resident carry out the discharge session for people who just had babies and went through the list of, as you said, the feeding and the sleeping and the so yeah. forth, 10 points or something like that, without mentioning any of what you've just described. So that's when they're leaving the hospital with their baby. And then they're back month after month, year after year. And from what I understand, really almost none of what you've been talking about as a, a pediatric surgeon. You're not a random person off the street, right? You are understanding that what you're talking about is absolutely crucial to the highest stakes in pediatrics. So it strikes me that the role of pediatricians is terribly underutilized in this arena. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and your thoughts on how could that be changed? How could it be made standard that pediatricians understood this? I, I love that question. I, you know, because I've thought a lot about why is it in this country that there's this sort of piecemeal approach to supporting parents and caregivers when we know that education and human development doesn't start on the first day of school, but the first day of life. And I think part of the issue is that there's not a sort of a a standard way that we can meet with and support parents that we've really leveraged. And there is no doubt that the healthcare system, perinatally, postnatally, is a powerful opportunity to both anchor these supports for parents and to be a continuation into K-12 education. I I believe that we need a public health approach to supporting parents. And what that means is how do we leverage the, I think not just pediatricians, but even in the perinatal period, OBGYNs can play a powerful role because let's face it, once the baby comes home, parents are overwhelmed. But why not start sharing this information and supports from day one? And so 
But you had mentioned, look, we often leverage home visiting as a way to support parents from low-income backgrounds. And I actually believe all parents deserve support. A public health approach means that you really take a tiered approach to supporting families, with families who have greater needs getting more significant supports. But at some level, all parents, none of us come with the knowledge of how humans are developed and how brains are developed. And so I think leveraging the prenatal and the perinatal period could be a great opportunity for that. How does that happen? You know, why isn't that happening? I mean, look, pediatricians, this is what they're all about, but incentives and supports are really important. They are stretched like everyone else. How do we leverage the pediatric visit as a holistic approach? And there are some really exciting different groups and programs that are thinking about this. There's a, a group called Family Connects. It used to be called Durham Connects that recommends universal home visits for all families after birth. And we had a great discussion with the the group in Chicago at the University of Chicago. And we're going to start embedding some of our tools and technology in with them where they meet every family because every family could use supports. I remember coming home with my daughter, my firstborn, and here I'm a physician. My husband was a pediatric surgeon and we're like, oh my Lord, what do we do now? (laughs) Everybody could use the support. And then this also gives you an opportunity for families who need greater supports, whether it be impacting the social determinants of health. We know that parental stress has a huge impact on child development and on parents too. If you're worried about homelessness or food on the table, that is not only going to affect you as a parent, but your child's development. And we as a society need to better support families. So yes, I think the healthcare sector could play a huge and important role. And there are a lot of people thinking a lot about it. Alan Mendelson and VIP, Reach Out and Read, Many, many groups are thinking about it, but we need to scale it more significantly. Yes. I would imagine that a key leverage point for both pediatric and, as you said, OBGYN practice would be the medical training programs. Yeah. Yeah. Right? How could that be affected? I mean, it's kind of extraordinary to an outsider layperson that OBGYN and pediatric medical training programs are not including this topic as a rule. It's actually kind of unbelievable. (laughs) And I guess, you know, major institutions are like giant steamers. It takes a long time for them to turn. My question, I guess, is who's holding the steering wheel and are they even trying to turn it? Yeah. You know, in the past, medicine was about treatment rather than prevention. And healthcare, the incentives were very much about how do you do more surgery? How do you, what we call RVUs? It is so much harder to quantify. I prevented all these diseases or I prevented these educational disparities or long-term health outcomes. But, you know, people are talking more and more about this. And there is a greater emphasis. But as you say, it is healthcare in this country. We invest a whole lot. We don't get as much as we should in terms of returns on investment. If you have a really bad medical problem, there is no place that you'd rather be than in US. I mean, I guess that's a a large overstatement. But in terms of prevention, that is where we don't do as well. I think that people are thinking more and more. So I am hopeful because it It pays in dividends in the long term. Yes. So another thing that you've written about that I find fascinating is you've described several kinds of interventions that are successful out there in the world. There are a whole range of really successful interventions and programs. And in the early childhood world, the Perry Preschool Program and Abbasidarian are two very well-known examples. And what we've found is that scaling that effectiveness appears to be essentially impossible, at the least so difficult to do that we haven't yet done it, right? And you've been writing about this. What are your thoughts on this question of how challenging scaling is And what means there may be to address that challenge? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do want to push back on one thing. It is not impossible. 
Okay. It is not impossible. It's just that we, so what you talk about is what we call the scale up effect. And the fact that you can have small studies that show this huge impact of a program. And let me be clear, this is not just an early childhood issue. This is a universal policy issue that we have lots of interventions that we show huge impact on the small scale. And then when you try to scale it up, it loses impact. And we like to call it the science of using the science, right? How do we take that impact and scale it? And, and, you know, it's, I think people are scared often to talk about it because they think, okay, this is in some way saying, well, you know, nothing works. It's just the opposite. Back not too long ago, we had what we call the credibility revolution, where people said, okay, we understand that science can really allow us to understand what works and what doesn't work. It used to be like, oh, I feel strongly that this is going to make a difference. But the credibility revolution helped us understand, okay, this is how you do a study to show this impacts children's human development. So you mentioned Perry and Abbasidarian. They had huge impact. There were small studies, but you cannot deny that they had huge impacts on the trajectories of children. But why in the last 50 years have we not been able to show that, you know, nationwide, worldwide? And we have spent a lot of money. It's because we need to understand how you scale things. And I've done research with my collaborator, John List, and there are other people in the field also working on this. Like, what are the main things that you need to do in the early period of testing programs so that it doesn't just mean that it works on the small scale, but how do you create it so that you are primed for scaling, right? Because if you develop a program that is so complex and rigorous, we know that somebody once said this to me, that the program almost mutates beyond recognition when you scale it. Uh There are sort of standard ways that you can start thinking about it. How do you make it so it's not as complex? How do you figure out what are the sort of core active ingredients that you have to have to make it scalable? So when you scale it, okay, those active ingredients are still there. So when it comes to parent programs or childcare programs, as we talked about, what is the core ingredient for child's brain development? Well, it's that nurturing interaction, that type of interaction, those three T's. I mean, we call it the three T's. There are many different ways. How do you know that when you take your program to the large scale, those nurturing interactions are still there? Because everything else is sort of like, I don't want to say it's not fluff, but it's just sort of the packaging. And that's a lot of what we've been thinking about in terms of, it's great that we've developed these programs, but how do we scale them? We need to be on not so much same page, but we need to address this issue openly because that's the only way we're going to make the world a better place for children. And just very recently, you've been writing about the potential role of AI in this whole early development arena. And with respect to the scaling challenge, how do you see AI fitting into this whole picture? Yeah. As you mentioned, I've been writing about it, thinking about it. Like anything, there are potential opportunities and potential risks. Like anything, everything cuts both ways. And I think being really thoughtful and intentional as a field, making sure that child development experts are at the forefront of these discussions, I think is incredibly important because as I wrote, the genie is out of the bottle, right? It is not going back in, but we need to be thoughtful because there are great opportunities, right? Towards helping us understand how to scale, helping us understand how to better support parents and caregivers without the other risks. And the truth is, is that we live in a world that's driven by AI and smart technology and big data analytics in almost all facets of our lives. But Early childhood, not so much. And that's obviously about to change as more and more people come into this field. The way I've been thinking about what technology can do related to the scaling issue, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about that, but it's much more than the scaling issue. But I've thought a lot about how AI and machine learning can help us on the measurement side, being able to understand what is the core component of programs and inputs that children need. It's not about 
replacing humans, but rather supporting humans in their important role as brain builders. And I think that's an important point to make because I believe that parents, caregivers, childcare providers should always be at the helm of brain building. It gets risky when we start giving that important role up to to others. They can be supports. Uh, With that being said, I think that we can look at AI and technologies as measurements. So let's look at the Perry Preschool. We know that it had a huge impact on children's development, but we weren't able to scale it. What if these technologies were embedded into when we were testing it in the early days so that we could say, wow, the reason that Perry Preschool was so powerful was through the mechanisms of teachers talking, interacting this amount with children or supporting parents in this way. By being able to measure it, then when you take Perry Preschool and you start scaling it, you can say, okay, Perry Preschool was powerful because of this active ingredient. And as we scaled it, we adapted it because you always have to adapt programs to different communities and contexts. But we were able to see that some of that active ingredient went away or decreased. And we can in real time or not in real time optimize things so we can keep having those active ingredients. We need to emphasize that adaption to different cultures and different locales and different views is critically important. But we also have to understand what is the core active ingredient. If you don't have it, then you're not going to have the impact. And that's where I see the potential of technologies really helping support human-centered programs being the best that they can be. Mm -hmm. I think that is such a promising way to think about the use of AI in this space, to be able to much better understand and measure the active ingredient of a program and then see to what extent that active ingredient has persisted as it scaled so that we're fixing the right thing when it's not going well. Yeah. And I I really want to emphasize that I think we need to always hold true the powerful role of parents and caregivers so that it is human-centered. It is about supporting the best of humanity, parents and caregivers. It is not about replacement. You know, another important point that I wanted to mention is that it is always human-centered and about supporting parents and that we need to talk deeply about the role of data and the fact that they own this data. But the fact that it's not just about saying, oh, look, this shows there's less talk and interaction. We need more talk and interaction. But also understanding that it can help us understand how context matters, right? If you are in a childcare setting where you have only one teacher who has no support with like a million different children, it's not about like saying, oh, look, there's less active ingredient. That teacher needs to do more. No, it can be an insight that they need more support. They need more different types of support. How does this also with parents? Like we can show, look, you know, when you don't have parents that are supported holistically, when you are dealing with homelessness or other adverse events, that it's about not just tell parents, oh, go talk and interact more, but rather we need to be supporting parents holistically because that's the only way we can support parents and optimize children's outcomes. Yes, So what are your thoughts on another potential use of AI, which I have mixed feelings about? It seems pretty likely to me that it's coming. Let's take a childcare center and let's take even a kind of an optimal setting or what is currently described as an optimal setting of two adults and eight babies. When I see it, it doesn't look optimal to me more expensive programs, wealthier people that I know are paying up to $50,000 a year to have a ratio that's more like two babies to one adult, because that obviously allows for a lot more of the kind of interaction that we know is so essential to children. And the longer hours they're in a childcare setting, the more important it is that's occurring. What are your thoughts on a setting in which there are, say, two adults and eight babies or two adults and 10 babies and three (laughs) very fuzzy, nice looking robots that are going around and interacting with these babies who otherwise would just actually be sitting there in their car seats staring at the ceiling? 
Catherine, you had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> Goodness gracious. Yeah. You know, that is a great, terrifying, I can't believe we're at this moment in time question. I, I wrote about some of those thoughts in my Wall Street Journal piece about the genie is out of the bottle. And I'm going to start with my concerns first. As we've talked about during this podcast, the early years are critical for foundational brain development. This is about how we build, I hate to use a computer term, the operating system of humans. And while we know a lot, there's so much that we don't know. We do know that experience matters. Experience matters a lot. But we don't know the deeper nuances of that experience. Look, I can tell you talk and interaction build children's brain, full stop. But we don't understand totally what's under the hood. And my fear is that in people building these quote unquote AI nannies, we're going to think we know everything there is to know about human development and inadvertently change foundational brain developments in ways that we don't understand. And let me explain a little bit. You know, obviously, we've seen even in recent past, people build social media and the word social with this idea that it's going to allow us to have more friends and be less lonely. And it did just the opposite, right? There's evidence of mental health issues and more loneliness amongst our population, especially teens. Um, we know that human development, talk and interaction, there's science that's showing that when you and I talk or a baby and a parent talks, their brain waves actually sync up. So it's not just words coming in, their brain waves are syncing up. And that the better their brain waves sync up, the more effective that that vocabulary learning is. You know, does this AI fuzzy childcare provider provide that? No. Does that have implications on that child's brain development? I don't know. I think the whole point is there is much that we don't know. Okay, I know that people are working on these sorts of things at all ages, and certainly in the elder population in Japan, it is already uh, occurring because of the large elderly population and lack of caregivers. But I really fear in the early, early years, there's a lot we don't know. So I'm not saying, oh, don't do it because I'm fundamentally against these things. I say we need to be super careful. Humans and that early brain development is core to who we are as humanity. How are we changing the evolutionary fabric of who we are? I mean, look, humans weren't born with the ability to read and write. It was when we started doing like drawings on the cave walls that these new neural connections allowed us to ultimately read and write. What does it mean when we have non-human, you know, automatons? What does it mean to feel connected to these automatons in the early years? I, I don't know. I think the whole point is we don't know. And especially in this foundational period, before we start moving in that direction. You better learn a whole lot more because um, can have foundational impacts. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is that this very adorable AI gadget, which could very easily be extremely appealing to young children from very young babies onwards. What I hear you saying is that it could look like it has human capabilities of communication, but what is actually an, ess an essential active ingredient of that brain building communication might be missing because we don't necessarily know all of the active ingredients of that brain building that are currently occurring in human-to-human -human interaction. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we've done a lot of things, large-scale trans fats, social media on our population without really understanding the science. I, I don't know. I think we need to learn more before we jump in. It's not to say, look, I, you know, I'm not one of these People sometimes people get dogmatic one side or the other side. I'm about understanding the science and allowing the science to lead the way. 
And that's all I'm saying. At the same time, there is so much that we can learn. You know, parenting the early years are incredibly difficult. How do we, in a smart way, start lightening the load by supporting parents in different ways? People are leveraging chat GPT for advice, et cetera. How do we leverage what we have in ways to support parents and caregivers? How do we explore how it impacts children's development? You know, on the other side, removing the AI nanny as, as primary caretaker, how could it allow us to pick up early delays sooner so that we can prevent different types of delays? How can we optimize brain development? There are so many positive things. I don't want to end on the note like, oh, it's all bad. I say proceed with not just caution, but in collaboration. I think it needs to be a collaboration with experts in research, in child development, people in the field, the world of the private sector. We need to be doing it together so that we can make sure our next generation is given the ability to reach their potential, not to change it. (laughs) Yes. So as a last question, you've been working in the field of advancing the capabilities of young children for several decades. (laughs) You've seen a lot of changes over that time. Are are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling optimistic? What are you most excited about looking forward? Yeah, yes, I am feeling hopeful and optimistic because we have to, right? Hope means that you feel like positive impacts can be made in the world and for children. And I absolutely feel that way. I think that as we understand more and more about human development, child development, the best ways to support parents and caregivers, we are working as a community to better supporting them. And I am incredibly excited about the different collaborations that we have across the country and across the world about people who are understanding that learning doesn't begin on the first day of school, but the first day of life, and that parents and caregivers are the key brain architects. I I think people really understand it and are ready to start investing in the right way. I mean, look, it's very easy to point to all the things that need to happen, and you and I are working on a lot of them. There's much that we need to do, but I'm feeling hopeful because we are as a whole, as a society, really understanding this important fact. And it feels like we're going in the right direction. Well, Dr. Seskin, thank you so much for spending this time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. Thanks so much to Dr. Seskin for a wonderful conversation. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. Please subscribe to the podcast so you're always up to date. Check out CCFP's work at ccfp.org and follow us on Twitter at underscore CCFP and at KB Stevens. We'll see you on the next episode of Early Matters. You've been listening to Early Matters, the podcast on the science and policy of early childhood, produced by the Center on Child and Family Policy. 